But the reality is ODK is a lot of code there. It's a very high risk code and that people are using for Ebola vaccine tracking and, and monitoring elections. And it's a 10 year old code base. And so the reality is, even though the software is free, it costs real money to build. For the last 10, 12 years, it has always been hand to mouth figuring out how do we actually fund those kinds of things. That's what keeps me up at night is how we solve that problem, how we figure that out. Those are the challenges when you realize like, you know, realistically speaking, the project, it's always a few months away from bankruptcy. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're telling the stories of social enterprises who are trying to find a better way to do good. That quote you just heard was from the last time Yao joined us on this podcast in November 2020. It's been over a year since that conversation, and in that time, a remarkable transformation has happened with ODK. In just one year, this organization has rebuilt their revenue model and finally achieved financial sustainability. So we catch up with Yao today to talk about the many different business models he built, which failed to take off, until he built one that worked. For those of you that don't know what ODK is, it's one of the most widely used open source data collection platforms in the aid and development space. To give you some idea of its popularity, in 2021, as part of their COVID-19 vaccine delivery efforts, the WHO and UNICEF did a survey of all of their technical partners asking about what key supporting technologies were needed. They listed things like mobile phones, internet connections, Microsoft Office, and ODK. If you want to hear the full story of what ODK is and how it was born, I'd encourage you to check out our last conversation with Yao. Today, we're going to dive into a specific question about ODK, which is, despite its wild success and popularity, ODK was constantly struggling to find the financial resources necessary to keep going. How is that possible? And what did Yao and his team do to turn things around? I started off by asking Yao about a common misconception, which is, why do you need people to maintain software? Why can't you just write it, release it, and go home? I would, trust me, as somebody who's built software, I would love to write it once and just put it on a shelf and then people can use it. You know, the, the term software engineering often is really a poor term because it makes it seem like it's, it's engineering. And it is sort of engineering, but it's more like software gardening. You know, it's software is <laughs> never done. That's a you great know, term. <laughs> it takes a lot of context and continuous work to make it great. The timing, just like in, in, in gardening, the timing really matters when you do something and how you do it and how you communicate to people. And so, you know, everybody who has a phone these days, you get these continuous software updates. You know, it's not like software developers mm. like have a desire to keep writing software. We're the laziest people on earth. That's why we're into automation. <laughs> the thing is that it just, it, it, it's, it's always changing. There's always uh, new things to add. And so um, any piece of software that you have, it really does need to be updated and maintained, maintained on an ongoing basis, or it, it just, it, it would just go out of relevance really quickly. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any piece of software I can imagine that I was I was using 10 years ago that I'm still using now. And I, I really struggle, whether it's your email, your messaging, your phone, like the, everything is changing and there's a reason for it. Like maybe it's features, but sometimes it's just like the underlying environment or the hardware or something is changing and the software has to keep up with it. So, so the idea that software can sort of sit on a shelf and still be functional in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years is, is crazy. No, it's never done. So growing software is like growing a garden. 
But how much does it cost to grow a garden? Are we talking about a couple thousand dollars? Yao and I chatted about what does it actually cost to build living software? For software, I guess people don't know how much software costs. Um, so generally, a software developer, if you just take an average software developer that you have to pay with all the costs associated with it, you know, $100,000 is a good thing to keep in mind as far as like a single software developer, all said and done. Um, and that's probably mm-hmm. more on the low end. To give people a sense, like, um, uh, you know, a, a good software developer who's at Google or Microsoft or, you know, one of these big uh, Silicon Valley companies can easily command, and this will blow people away, $500,000 total compensation. What? Oh, my God. That's a combination of stock and that's a combination of, what am I of doing with my base life? salary. There's an extraordinary, and even and if you do machine learning and stuff, there's even more. So it's it's wild for people to understand oh, that there, software developers are an extremely high demand, and the good ones can command extraordinary salaries. So think of how much money you could be making. Yeah, uh, think about it. You know, uh, that's a great point. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but now that you mentioned it, I could be out here. Here, here's the thing. I live next door to. Um, a 102-year-old gentleman, his name is Dexter. He's got a, he's had a couple, huh. a couple of kids. And Dexter and I, we get to talk uh-huh. occasionally. And, you know, the one thing that I've learned uh, about sort of folks who've been around for a long time is that they really have a good sense of what is important in life and what, what a good life means. And for me, I've got you know, lots of great friends who work at, at Facebook and Google and, and these other kinds of companies. Um, but for me personally, it's not, it's not the kind of life that I want to live. Um, I'm, I, I feel you know, very lucky and fortunate to have found um, that I can make a reasonable living working on ODK and have, you know, um, uh, Facebook definitely has an impact in the world. It's not always clear that it's positive. And for, for me, <laughs> uh, for me at ODK, good, good caveat. yeah, um, I, I feel like it's, it's pretty, pretty likely that we're having a positive impact and I'm not uh, suffering too much here in San Diego. So, you know, to be honest, um, <laughs> I don't need to be making uh, half a million dollars a year uh, to find satisfaction. And I think a lot of people on the team feel that same way, you know. So, um, but it gets to the cost that... Bless all of you. That if, you know, if you're trying to hire a really good team, um, it, it can't be, you know, the minimum you should be thinking about probably is like, five, you know, 100K when it's all said and done. And that's going to be your, mm-hmm. each developer that you add, you know, that's going to be a, a thing to sort of keep in mind. And so if you have a team of five people working on a piece of software, you know. Yeah, and, and just to add even on those on those costs, like a, like a top-end software developer in South Africa, in Kenya, in Bangalore, India, like will also command those prices as well. So going going overseas doesn't really help you. It doesn't help you. Ma- managing those expenses. Well, because, and it's going to get, it's going to get better for those developers in other countries, but worse for, I don't know, business owners, but who cares about business owners? But, <laughs> you know, basically, no, a complicated one. As we as as we go more remote and 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 more distributed as far as work, those salaries will will stabilize and they'll stabilize high. That that is to say, you're exactly right. If you're in Bangalore or South Africa or Rwanda and you're good, you will be able to work at a Google or a Stripe or a Facebook and command those kinds of salaries. So what we offer at ODK, you know, is you know, uh, a great quality of life and you, you know, you get some salary and get to work on impact. Um, but the costs will remain, you know, 100K is like a, a good thing. So, you know, we have a, and that, that's not even counting like your testers. ODK runs on 13,000 different devices. Like things have to be tested and there's probably somebody in sales and marketing and support. So 
it gets to be very expensive. In the half hour ahead, we'll talk about how ODK grew from a research project to a group of ad hoc people living off the occasional grant or consulting contract, and then a dozen different businesses that Yao tried before he finally figured out how to make ends meet in a sustainable way. We'll start at the very beginning with the birth of ODK as a research project. At the time, Yao was just wrapping up his master's studies at the University of Washington. My uh, advisor, uh, Gaetano Borriello, had gone to Google on sabbatical, and myself and Carl and Whelan and Adam were interns for him. And so there was no thought about uh, money because Gaetano had the, the funding, research funding, to build it out. But as we left the internship and we went back to school, there was, you know, um, you know, grants, research grants that would pay for things. And so we never really had to thought of, we never really had to sort of think about, you know, how do you pay for this? Because like there was always money, research money to pay for it. And to be honest, we didn't think it was going to be a thing. Sweet, sweet research money. Yeah, that's sweet, sweet. <laughs> we didn't have to write grants for it. It just appeared, you know, and um, we didn't have to think about that at all. And to be frank, we didn't necessarily think it was going to be an ongoing thing. Right. It was just like a research project. That makes total sense that you thought about it that way. And God bless principal investigators for getting that money in the first place to fund all the grad students to do that kind of thing. You know, like I think at that stage of where it was at, you 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 didn't have to think about money. You didn't have to think about how that grant money came in. Nope. It was just like, hey, you know, Gaetano got a grant to satisfy some research goal. He has students who build a stuff and we build it. We put it out there. People can use it, however. And certainly there was like other work, you know, like marketing or support. and. The grad students, you know, we, we would do that as just part of like, you know, a hobby or something like that. So that's how it went for a long time. But projects can't live at a university forever. You know, university is just not a, a great place. And so after Carl and I finally, finally graduated with our PhDs, <laughs> you know, the project had to go through a bit of a transition. And it was sort of, so the first stage was sort of research project. And then the second stage was more of like, let's just call it like a community project where there were stakeholders hmm. who were involved, maybe some of the university, maybe some commercial people who were implementing it. And, and uh, Carl and I had a company uh, called Nafundi at the time that was one of these commercial implementers. And we did a lot of work as far as support or training or building features uh, for development. And so that's sort of how, you know, between the combination huh. of some of UW's grants and Nafundi, yeah. we sort of existed just to like take money for implementation and put some of that towards like the core maintenance. So that's how that went for a very long time. That makes total sense. You need an organization that can accept money and, and getting it through the university, I imagine, is a whole rigmarole. It is. How did you come up with the name, Nafundi? What does that mean? I was in, as is always the case, I was in some terrible hotel in sub-Saharan Africa <laughs> working on some project. And um, a, a fundi, I, I'm originally from West Africa, but fundi is a Swahili word. That means uh, it's kind of like the MacGyver guy in the village, the guy who fixes stuff, your fixer. <laughs> it's another term for it. And na so is Swahili also for with. You never hear the phrase na fundi in common Swahili or whatever. Um, but if you look at those words separately, that's what it means. It means with a fundi. So we thought our fancied ourselves sort of technical experts, MacGyver types who were there to sort of help with your software development. Yeah. You must get all sorts of questions from native Swahili speakers. Yeah, I'm sorry. Don't email me, please. I we just we needed a name, something unique. It's hard to do. So you and Carl set up Nifundi, this organization, in order to receive contracts so you could deliver on all the different requests that were coming towards you from the ODK side. That seems that seems like a reasonable living. That seems that seems okay. Although I imagine that's 
again, a lot of the project to project and sometimes you have projects and sometimes you don't? It's challenging in the sense that it's, you know, companies can be broken up often like in two, they have sort of two focuses, foci, I'm sorry. Um, I don't know what the word it is, but um, <laughs> you, you're often either in services or you're in, in product. And so a services company is often like a consulting shop and you get money as you do projects. And a product, you know, you produce something and somebody sort of buys it. And so we were more in the services side where, you know, mm-hmm. um, as contracts come in, we'd see what the profitability of the contract is, whether or not it fits what ODK's roadmap uh, was and try to sort of uh, fit it in. Um, but that's a, a kind of business that is, you know, it can be quite stressful, especially if you have payroll to meet. And the only way you grow is by, you know, growing the team. And um, so that got, you know, mm-hmm. that got challenging on our side. And then on the, on the UW side, which UW was doing a lot of work, you know, through grants, to, to continue to make ODK, maintain it and, and, and add features, you know, you can only write so many grants to do mobile data collection. You know, faculty need to move on to other exciting research areas. <laughs> and so it got to mm-hmm. a point where it's just, it was challenging from both sides to find the resources to um, keep it going. The confounding factors, all of this is that there were other players in the ecosystem as well, people who had businesses on top of ODK who were generating value and, and money from ODK. But it was often the case that, you know, the direct, you know, their contributions, but like the actual money that was flowing back up to the project was not, was non-existent. And, you know, this is a challenge with just open source in general. So like the people who could, who had some money, the money's not predictable, it's very hard to get. The people who are getting some benefit from it, commercial benefit, uh, didn't always have an easy way or a natural incentive to sort of contribute financially to the project. So, you know, it becomes challenging that way. Interesting. So you're talking about how there are some actors that are getting benefit from the product, but they aren't able to channel that back into the work that you're doing to support them. Is there an example of that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to name any names or anything like that, but in open source, <laughs> it, open source works really well when it's sort of a group of developers working on a core library or core technology that everybody needs. They can all contribute to it. It's very natural and it's not a valuable thing. It's like valuable in the sense that it's a widget, it's a wheel, you're not building the whole car. And so with those kinds of things, it's, it's very easy and natural to collaborate. But when the thing that is mm. open source is like a user-facing kind of product, like an end-to-end thing, it becomes very hard for, for people to collaborate on that because you're all making the same thing. And so you're competing. And so there's a natural urge not to collaborate or it's, it, there's no incentive to do that. And so, you know, lots of folks in the community contributed the way, they, you know, the way that they could. So for example, Ona, you know, uh, Ona, has, mm. you know, Matt Berg has been on the on, on your podcast and Matt and I, we go way mm. back. Matt's a great guy. Um, and so they, you know, they r- yeah. ran a, a hosting ODK hosting service and they contributed a lot, right? As far as uh, building XLS form, which is now a form standard and, and providing a turnkey service for folks. So they contributed in all those um, ways. But at the same yeah. time, they're focused on, you know, the platform and, and, the, and the product but there needs to be a lot of work on the mobile app, the thing that people use. And so they don't necessarily have uh, a, a natural way to sort of contribute there. So there's lots of these kinds of things where it's like either somebody is just hosting the software and charging money for it, or somebody has taken the core code base, has made it closed source and is commercializing that. Uh, none of that, you know, uh, some, some contributions flow back, but they are out, they're smaller relative to the value that's being generated. I really like your analogy about the car. I think the problem that you've pointed out is it's not, people don't point at it very often. So I'm going to, I'm going to repeat it. I think it was also called up by, by Maya Kumar um, from GitHub, something about the nature of open source projects in the public health space. 
wherein if if one group was working on the wheel of the car and another was working on the engine, another was working on the windshield wiper, then they could all fit together and you'd have a cohesive system. But what actually happens is there is a car and we're all working on different paint jobs <laughs> on the car. We're all working on the windshield. Yep. And it's not how the majority of successful open source projects work. It's like a bit of a, a funny thing in the public health space uh, that leads to two weird incentives that are different than in other sectors where open source works. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back yeah and ask you one other one other question about the um, the three the three pain points that you're talking about. You're talking about how it's hard to get research funding to do the same research over and over, which makes sense. You know, research is done. You've written the paper. Okay, it's you you need to create a model whereby people who are getting you know, profit from the software can can funnel it back to the creating agency. That makes total sense. Uh, the first thing that you said was around how in a services company, in order to in order to provide services, you need to hire more people. That doesn't sound so bad. You know, you could have an army of little little yows. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a bit about the challenges there in scaling a services company. I mean, most people have services companies, right? Yeah, they do. Um, I mean, the challenge is, first of all, for me personally, it's very offensive just to think about an army of yows all over the world <laughs> providing data collection services. What a crazy world that would be. I, I think <laughs> services companies... Would it be crazy or would it be amazing? It would, uh, it would be troublesome, I tell you. I think one is probably more than enough. One yow is just a lot. So there's nothing wrong with a services company. There's two high-level problems. One is that, you know, as you scale, it requires a lot of people you have to build a huge organization to be able to deliver these kinds of things. Um, so that's like that personally what I was interested in, in, in building out. It seemed exhausting. And then the second thing is that it's not clear to me it's best, at least in this context, in the social impact context, that we want to build software that requires essentially an army of consultants to be able to deploy. You know, it's not self-service. Folks can't do it themselves. Uh, we thought that for the users that we we're trying to serve, Having a services sort of based organization where it biases to having a lot of consultants and then you have an incentive to make the software as, as complicated as possible so you can generate more services revenue. Like you don't want to think about those kinds of things, but that those are the incentives that are put in place when you're doing sort of a, a services based thing. I think a services based model within sort of the ODK ecosystem would make a lot of sense if there was like maybe a small core group that's just pro a separate group that's just providing the core technology and it's highly configurable, and then you have like implementers or organizations that are implementing it, you know, something like an open MRS model or something like that. But that was not the case with ODK. You know, ODK, you know, mm -hmm. is a user-facing piece of software. You know, it, it, there's not a lot of configuration options. It's just like a thing that you download and use. And so like, what are you, what are you going to build services around, you know? And so you can think like, well, you could build services around form design. You could build services around uh, uh, visualization. But uh, these are all things that users should be able to do themselves. You know, like the person who's building the form knows the best about their user base and, and how the data should be structured. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that you want to sort of have a consultant do. And so the a services thing didn't make a lot of sense given the structure that we were in. Um, and so it ultimately became untenable. That makes total sense. I think it's reflective of some of the bigger issues that we have with the aid sector. Uh, I think even outside of tech, there's this feeling that aid is biased towards training, 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 and not actually you know, doing the good work that's going to build hospitals or schools or financial systems. And, 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 and a similar kind of thing, like when you train people, everyone's incentivized and you can see whole organizations that are built to spend hours and hours training instead of delivering healthcare. Um, whereas with ODK, 
your success is that you want to see the software used. It's not that you have 10,000 contracts <laughs> that require that allow you to hire 10,000 people because ultimately the software is just a means to the end and you're trying to enable that. Correct. So you decided to shift away from the services model. You shifted away from the research side. Where did you go? Yeah, it's a good, where could we go? There was nothing left. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, previous sort of- Wandering in the desert. <laughs> previous like our revenue sources that we had was, you know, okay, we we get grants to build features that satisfied research goals. So that's like the UW when we were at the University of Washington. And then we're within Nifundi, it's like, okay, some mix of grants and contracts to build features for implementers. And uh, we've also tried, you know, contracts for support and training and deployments. And the challenges with all these models is that they're not aligned with what our users, you know, want and need and where we think the future is going. So, for example, like if mm-hmm. you're getting a, a, a grant, um, it typically funds projects or, you know, I put this in quotes, innovation, so something new. It's typically time-bound mm-hmm. and pretty bursty and that you get the money for mm-hmm. a period of time. And that doesn't really line up with how to thoughtfully make software, right? Is the, back to the gardening analogy. Yeah. It's like, okay, it's the winter now. The ground is hard. Now you have a million dollars to like plant new stuff. It's like, but it, it's the winter. Like I, I cannot spend a million dollars planting. It. I just can't mm. do anything. So, Christmas trees? Yeah. Uh. And so exactly. That's a great point. So now you're, you know, your, your people, they need like wildflowers. But now you're like building a greenhouse and make and planting Christmas trees because that's what, that's new. It's innovative, but it's not what people need. And so ultimately sort of the spiky, grant model didn't make a lot of sense. We had to be very, we spent a lot of time being creative with our sequencing to sort of smooth things out and end up being very, very inefficient. So that's the challenge with the grants sort of model. For sure. You could talk to anyone in aid about like that whole emotional roller coaster. I remember talking to the the UNICEF contractors back in the day and they were, they'd were they be like, yeah, you know, I work 10 months and then I just sit around for a month waiting for my contract to be renewed. And I kind of do some work because otherwise the project will fall apart. But mostly I'm just sitting around unpaid and then my real contract comes back and you're just like, really? Yeah, wow. it's, it's not the most efficient way to do things. And then the sort of the contracts model where you're using contracts to sort of build features or do support and training, all of these are also, they incentivize you to do, you know, you have a contract for, I don't know, $10,000, $50,000. And as an organization, you want to make sure that contract is profitable in some way so you have some margin. And so you're incentivized to take mm-hmm. as many shortcuts as possible, right? No matter how good of a software developer or how thoughtful you want to be, the organization is, is, is incentivized to be, you know, to be efficient. And, and mm-hmm. so that may not incentivize long-term thinking. You may do something that is profitable now but that is not helpful in the long term when you have to maintain something. And so um, we found ourselves, you know, when we left the grant model and we went to the contracts model that we were also doing things that didn't make a lot of sense, taking a lot of shortcuts. It just required a lot of discipline. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. And, and you're not even in that, in what you're talking about, you're not even really talking about profit. You're talking about covering your core costs, you know, because the grant doesn't, it's not going to cover the the tech debt or the admin. Yeah. Often examples like, okay, there's a bug in how ODK handles date times. Date times, you know, tend to be very complicated. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, time is very hard to sort of program against. And so, well, no customer wants to pay for that. That's not like a feature, <laughs> you know? It's not, it's like you can't go to a customer and say like, listen, there's a bug here in this very small piece and that if you're in Ethiopia and the time zone changes, there's going to be a bug. And they don't care about that kind of stuff. There's maintenance, ongoing yeah. security maintenance that nobody's paying for with these yeah. feature development contracts. And so... That's also not great exactly. for the project. And so we, we looked at 
a bunch of different options to explore. It's like, well, if we wanted to do this in a more sustainable and reasonable way, what would we do? So we explored, you know, well, maybe we're wrong about this whole consulting customization support thing. Like, so we explored, like, what would it take to really become a full consulting shop and really try to build out that kind of infrastructure? So we explored that. Hmm. We explored. Oh, you did explore the mini Yao option. Yeah, we did. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, we explored that option. We explored going open core. Uh, so open core means you huh. still have the open source stuff, but you're building now purely commercial closed source features on top or besides ODK. So, you know, uh, on top of ODK would be like, well, maybe we build an entire visualization platform on top of ODK, but that is like closed source and you, oh, yeah. you have to pay for it. Um, or besides ODK, it's like, well, maybe we help people are using ODK. Maybe we help them manage their large uh, fleets of devices. Uh, so a mobile device management. So either on top or besides were things we explored. We explored doing less do-gooder kinds of things. So it's not just social impact world that needs data collection. Like a very classic data collection thing is insurance. When there's an insurance claim, people come out to a site, they take pictures of the car that's been damaged, write down some things, and then that's like a data mm-hmm. collection thing. So we, well, maybe we should pursue other verticals. Um, and then the last... Right, like the Robin Hood model. The Robin Hood model, the I, rich, I think. Get to the poor. Yeah, Nyaruka, I think, is the one that likes to use the Robin Hood model. Um, so, so that was another option that we explored. Um, and then the last one was, uh, you know, double down on like the public good side of it, maybe become a nonprofit foundation or join a, a nonprofit foundation and just say like, we get money from donations and we figure out how to sort of make software in that way. So a ton, wow. of, a ton of models. <laughs> Yeah, no, that sounds exhausting. You know, you you have a job and you have contracts that you're working against or whatever you're doing at the time. And at the same time, you're exper- you're, you're running all these experiments. And I, and obviously they didn't all work out, I'm guessing. No, they did um, not all work out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, just like the, the mental headspace of balancing all these different things. Is there is there one of these that failed sp- particularly spectacularly? Um, yeah, the joint, the nonprofit foundation, you know, Really? I wouldn't call it a spectacular what? failure, but it, <laughs> it it pointed out one challenge that we have, which is we are, as a culture, the, the team behind ODK, you know, we are do-gooders in some way. And so we want things to mm. sort of align to that. It's like, well, obviously this thing should be a nonprofit because that's what feels good. Yeah. And we should be pro- produ- producing public goods and we should be funded by grants. But it's often the case that like, how you want the world to exist, it, it doesn't actually make sense. So let's take an example. Like uh, nonprofits have this, I think I said the five-year mark, a nonprofit has to have one third, I believe one third of its support has to come from the public. Um, and so if you see nonprofits huh. websites that say donate, 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 it's not necessarily because yeah. they need the money. It's that to get your tax deductible status, a third of your profit has to, uh, of your revenue has to come from from the public. I did not know that. Yeah, a lot. So, Interesting. Yeah, and so it's just you, and then nonprofits huh. have like a very awkward and, and very non-standard accounting systems put in place. So you just because you want to do a good thing or whatever, you 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 take on all these constraints that may not actually help you do the thing. So that's one thing. The public support was a big blocker, and then the other is that uh, the at least in the U.S., software development is not typically considered the kind of thing that is a public charity. And, and you can you can imagine that because like you can imagine like a Salesforce or you know a Google setting up a nonprofit gets a tax deductible status and they're just like you know they're just using it as a tax dodge or whatnot. 
Um, and so the IRS pays particularly close attention to software development that is like being done at a nonprofit because it's, it's, oh, it's very obviously a tax dodge. That's why a lot of software foundations, they don't do software development. A lot of it is built around education. It's like, oh, we provide education yeah. on how to do this, right? Because it's very yeah. difficult to justify to the IRS that the, the production of software that you're charging money for should be tax deductible. And so we just came to realize that how we wanted the world to be did not exist and, and that we're, we're <laughs> jumping through a lot of hoops you know, to try to make the world exist and that we should really just try to lean on the sort of the trust that we've, we've built over the years and our community to sort of divorce the structure from what we are trying to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I really appreciate you calling that out. It's remarkable. I've worked in the nonprofit sector in the United States for so long and no one has called this out as explicitly as you've just done it. You know, when you talk when you talk to people about building software for good, they say, oh, you could do it as a as a as a, as a business or a nonprofit. It's all kind of the same. Um, but having, you know, having built this software company and having tried to set up as a nonprofit, you were saying explicitly like you've looked at the legislation and it's specifically set up the way that the accounting is set up, the way that the the revenue streams have to be set up by law in the United States um, is biased against software development. Yeah. That's a key takeaway for me from this conversation. Well, gl- glad to help. We had to learn it the hard way. <laughs> Ultimately, it, 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 I'm not going to set up a nonprofit <laughs> now. I'm going to go, going to go social enterprise. Good thing that's the season's focus. <laughs> I did something right. Go me. I think it's you know, and to be clear, it's possible to do software development in a nonprofit, but it's like you're you're fighting, you're going upstream, you're fighting these systems that have been put into place, and it's not a great use. It's probably not going to be a great use of your of your time and, and your effort in, in that way. So, yeah. And, and I definitely get the, the example you gave, like I can't imagine Salesforce, you know, gets 99 private sector customers and then one Mary Stopes. And because of that, they try to get like a charity status out of it. Like you can, you can imagine why the government would find it hard to regulate yep, that thing. For sure. <sighs> and then the, Fascinating. the, yeah, the other sort of challenge on the nonprofit side is that, you know, the reason you're a nonprofit often is because you get a tax deductible status. But the money, the reason you do that is because like people are giving you money and they care about the fact that they get a tax break, right? Your biggest donations will come from who care about a tax break. But in our case, the people mm-hmm. who are who would be giving money to ODK, they don't care that it's tax deductible. You know, they don't. Yeah. Yeah, they don't care. They just yeah. and and so you've you've built this entire structure. <laughs> just use it. Yeah, you've built this entire structure because you feel like it should be a public good, and so it makes sense that it's a charity or or or, uh, or a nonprofit. But uh, you know, the people who are giving you the money, they don't care at all. Nobody has ever asked me an ODK. It, it, sometimes they assume that it's a nonprofit, but it's never been a blocker to a grant or a contract. And typically, users don't care. They care that like you're you're doing good work. They care. Some people care that it's open source. And that you're focused on social impact and that there's, you know, good people doing good work. But the, the structure of the organization, it's it's rare that people care about that. Yeah, that makes total sense. So you listed, what, five different, <laughs> you know, business models? There are so more. There's much more. <laughs> so much suspense. So much suspense. Which one worked? Yeah, which one worked? Which one worked? So what we ended up going with was uh, cloud hosting. Cloud hosting. That wasn't even on the ones you listed. That was a list. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah, so cloud host. You're messing with me. Cloud hosting is like the, for us, was the natural fit. We had shied away from that because historically at ODK, we wanted to, you know, we wanted to have this ecosystem where 
other companies could sort of make money on the product, uh, you know, on, on hosting or whatnot, and then put that money back into the project in some way. But over sort of, you know, 10 to 14 years, that didn't really happen in a meaningful way. And so we wanted to say, well, if mm. that's going to be the case, if others are capturing the value from what we are producing as an organization or as a community, then we should be able to do the same and, and for lack of a better word, compete with the other folks in the space. Like we, sh- we don't want to be martyrs, right? We don't want to, what's the old saying? Mm. You don't want to set yourself on fire to keep somebody warm. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. That's a, that's a that's, stick in my memory. That's very powerful, <laughs> I know. So essentially, we wanted to say like, okay, we we want to become functionally implementers. So uh, cloud hosting made a lot a lot of sense for us. And what that means is like, essentially users could come to the website and they could you know pop in their credit card and they would get an ODK instance or server without knowing any technical details. And we felt that, you know, this, people call it SaaS, right? Software as a service was getting more and more common in global development mm-hmm. um, where there's like a lot mm-hmm. of successful orgs that do, you know, Comcare people know, Ona is really sort of a SaaS. Um, then there's others, Ghost, RStudio, Discourse. There's a bunch of these organizations that, you know, offer software as a mm-hmm. service. And it's great because if you're, if you're in a market or in like a culture or a time when people are, all understand that this is a thing. It's very easy to explain and and to and to sell to folks because there's no extra education needed, right? Like uh, people know what SaaS mm-hmm. is, their organizations know what SaaS is, and so it's easy for people to, to buy. And so we thought it solved a bunch of problems. One is that users can just get started without knowing any technical details. That challenge and assumption that we've made at ODK a long time that said like, oh, well, people want to run their own servers. Sure, let them run their own servers. It turns out people, <laughs> I mean, this sounds crazy to say it now. Like people don't want to run their own servers. It's a lot of work to run your own servers and do Hell your own support. No. Yeah, so, so we said, okay, fine. Some people want to run their own servers, but most people don't. So we'll provide the service for them. And we'll be, some people don't want to go on a forum and ask strangers for support. They just want to pay somebody to give them the answer. And so we'd provide that as a service, as part of the SaaS. So the hosting plus the support and then this solved sort of the biggest pain point is that the SaaS means that people are paying every month. And so it gives us consistent recurring revenue from like a variety of sources. And so we have every month, we have the resources we need to make ODK better overall in like a long-term thinking, thoughtful, coherent way. You know, we can plant the seeds oh, in the spring, God. we can harvest it in the fall because we have like a predictable <laughs> amount. Um, to do. I don't know. Well, I get a lot of farming stuff in, in my mind, I guess. So, <laughs> so it solved that particular problem. And we still, you know, we still do feature funding. Like if somebody comes to us and says, we want to build a feature and we have money for the feature, we'll still do that. But now we have the choice. We can say, actually, we're not interested. It doesn't fit our roadmap. It doesn't make sense for us as far as the cohesive nature of the software that we want to build. And uh, so we can say no to those things. And we can also say yes to grants nice. if they align with something catalytic that we want to do. But if it doesn't, we, nice. can, we can also have the option then to do it. So it's sort of the best of both worlds. We have a recurring revenue structure and, and stable amount of revenue that comes from the cloud hosting um, that pays yeah. to keep people going. And then if there are opportunities that pop up for features or grants, then sure. But we never have to do it. Um, and that's, that's been trans- transformational. That sounds amazing. That sounds like freedom a little bit. Well, <laughs> and, yeah, it's, we're, more, we're, we're more free. We're more free, but not totally free. Uh, 
I should say yes, that you're still accountable. Yeah. Husband, and to, it's scary. <laughs> and it's scary. And I have to be mm. upfront about this. You know, sometimes when you're on a podcast or, you know, telling people the story, it's just about like how great it was. And then we figured it out and then success. And um, it's extremely scary because the reality is a lot of people have worked a lot over the last 14 years to make ODK, not just the core team mm-hmm. people who started it, but like the people who've advocated for it the technical advisory board, the people who send in contributions. This really has been a community project in that way. People have been talking about ODK for a long time. And this is a mm-hmm. huge change. It's very disruptive change on how the project is structured, how it's framed, how it's communicated. Right. When, when would you say you pulled the trigger on this change? October. It's been about a year. And so maybe about, um, about 18 months, we started to lay the groundwork about adjusting the governance to allow this kind of structure clearly reworking the website so it's not so much like, hey, this is ODK and everybody makes ODK and you can download it here to get started to more like, yeah. here's... I mean, a- you're changing what the product is, how people use it, how they engage about it, how they think about it, how you market it. Like it's it's a fundamental part of the identity exactly. of a piece of software. You know, how do you, how do you access it? How do you use it? That's a tremendous effort. I'm sure it was, it's a big decision to make. And then from making that decision to actually implementing it is a whole arc of effort. A ton of work. Um, And ultimately, what we wanted to do was just like lean into the trust that people have had in us for those, you know, last 14 years to say that like, hey, these folks have been around for a long time. They've been committed to this sector for a long time and trying our best to sort of make the thing work and produce as many public goods as possible. And so we just ultimately had to say that we trust that people trust us to make the decisions that are necessary to sort of evolve the project in the most forward looking way. And it's been... Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's what we sort of operated on. And then the the other thing we operated on was I was talking to I'm not going to name him, I don't want to put his name out there but I was talking to a, a, a mentor and he he kept asking like well, well what do you want to do <laughs> because I was saying all these things about like oh maybe we should set up a nonprofit or trying to think more about <laughs> sort of what is best for the project in general and he kept coming back to this point that said ultimately what's best for the project is what the people who are in charge of the project are able to do and are interested in doing because Hmm. you cannot, let's say you don't want to run a nonprofit. Well, then how are you going to run the nonprofit? Like somebody (laughs) has to do the nonprofit. So if you're not interested in doing that, don't don't believe it is going to work. Then it's like, it doesn't matter if that's the best thing to do because then you have to go find somebody who runs a nonprofit, you know? So it's it's just, what do you want to do? And for the team, it it was pretty clear. Like we want to focus on social impact. That's what drives us. We want to continue right. to focus on ODK. We think it's like, it's a beautiful thing that exists and it's so rare to have tools that are so broadly used. Um, and we thought being able to sort of make improvements incremental and otherwise to this like existing platform was better than like trying to rebuild something new and perfect that is never adopted. And that we were a small producty team. And so we should double down on, on sort of making a product. So yeah, so ultimately we, we settled on cloud hosting um, and settled on keeping our small team in place, focused on social impact and making ODK better and better. And so that's what we did. That makes total sense. That was, that was about a year ago. <laughs> I guess I guess the challenge with a software as a service business model is that you have all these different people that you know subscribe to pay a small monthly fee to use your hosted solution. But in any given month, they can just walk away. I'm guessing you don't you don't lock them in for you know five years or ten years or anything. That's like a great that. idea. Like it's it's possible. We should lock them in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you heard it from me first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it is true that uh, people typically for SaaS software as a service they pay either monthly 
or they pay yearly with some discount. And there is no real lock-in in that way. But I think that aligns very nicely mm-hmm. with the reality of a lot of projects is that um, if we are continuing to provide value every month, customers should feel very comfortable to continue the subscription. And because, it, yeah, so we're providing value every month. Mm-hmm. Sure, we should be paid every month. And, and then the software is also changing every month. And so users are also, we have cost every month. And so it, it aligns nicely. Um, yeah, there's no lock-in and there's... It's your accountability. Like ultimately, if you don't keep on con- contributing value mm-hmm. month after month after month, those users will walk away. Exactly. Uh, so um, and th- so that's, how, that's how we keep you honest. Yeah, and the industry <laughs> term for that is, is churn. And so, you know, we've mm. been doing this now, I guess, for almost a little over a year. And there's been very low churn. Um, I think for our nice. uh, our customers, you know, they they love it because it's like everything that they like about <laughs> OK, but now there's they don't have to think about running servers or doing support. You know, they get experts who are focused on the technology while they get to focus on their data and, and their data collection. And so, um, you know, it's been great for our customers in that way. And then as far as the people who are not our customers, our users, it turns out they love it as well <laughs> because we haven't sort of buried the fact that ODK is open source and that you can install it for free. We, mm-hmm. it, You can go to the ODK website and there's a link right there that says, like, if you want to self-host, press here. Uh, here's how you get support from the community. So all that stuff is out there, but there's now a greater benefit. We are now, because we have the revenue engine in place, we are shipping more features than ever before. We're doing it in a fast and cohesive and productive you know, predictable and a thoughtful way. And we also have like money to do things like documentation, uh, which is very, <laughs> documentation. yeah, which is very helpful for the folks who are self-hosting. And so yeah. they don't really lose anything. It's more like, Hey, if you don't want to know about servers, you know, you can, um, you can use ODK cloud and, you know, you'll be perfectly fine. Um, and then the team is just happier, you know, ultimately that's what it's all about. <laughs> is that we can do sort of <laughs> consistent work and we have the optionality to take on contracts or grants if it makes sense. Um, and people are not as, you know, as stressed out as much, which means we can do it for even longer. And how does it all add up over the years as your team has grown and, you know, the number of people that are using ODK has grown, um, that, you, that you have a pretty significant set of expenses that you're managing and the SaaS fees, the monthly fees, the idea is that they're low cost. Like, does it, when did it all add up? enough yeah to cover those costs when was that moment when was that moment <laughs> when you reached it when you reached break even so i should say that odk cloud which is the SaaS product is growing faster than we ever imagined i'm an optimist and even i was blown away and so really yeah it's been crazy it's been out for such a short period of time yeah yeah we've hit our you know we were trying to be financially sustainable when we hit that goal in one year which is really nice. which has been really wild for the team and we, you know, we're very What did that feel like? What was the day? Do you remember? Gratitude? When you looked at your numbers? Yeah, like... <laughs> I felt gratitude because we've made this really big scary change and um, the fact that it's growing really quickly and that our customers are really happy and that our users continue to use ODK and advocate for it, it means that we found we've been very fortunate and we found alignment and and momentum. And so, yeah, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for the team, to the community. Um, I feel very lucky, you know, that we've been able to solve this sort of this this problem. At least for now, who knows what more problems are coming? But <laughs> this problem. Tell me you did something to celebrate. Um, Tell me you did something. I we wrote more code. I mean, what else? <laughs> we ship more great stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did some light stretching. Huh. I did some light stretching, and then I, <laughs> I got back to work. Such pandemic slash parenting life. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we'll grab a beer next time I'm in town. Absolutely. Absolutely. After 14 years, ODK can finally cover its costs. Yao and his team no longer need to balance the knife's edge every year of, am I going to win the next contract? Am I going to get the next consulting gig? They've anchored their work on the kind of offering that people are willing to pay for year after year, as long as they continue to get value out of ODK. But it's been a long slog. Yao and I got to talking about what those years were like. It's required a lot of personal sacrifice, 5 a.m. calls, and the team pushing themselves really hard for this cause they believe in. And remember that bit from the beginning of this conversation where Yao mentioned his buddies at Facebook are making half a million dollars a year? That's nowhere near what Yao is making. So I just, I had to ask him, do you ever think about moving into an industry that's a little bit easier or, or at least one that pays a little better? I remember <laughs> uh, many, many years ago, dark times during the PhD, where <laughs> it was, uh, we were sitting in the, uh, Gaetano and the bus, a bunch of us were, were sitting in the, um, in the, in the, the, the lab and, uh, Alfred Spector, who was at the time at Google health came by uh, to talk to all of us. Mm-hmm. And he had been one of the people who had helped fund ODK, um, when we were at Google and he, he looked at oh. me, he recognized me and he's like, are you still here? <laughs> what are you, are you still Ooh. in school? And I was like, oh, come on, man, I'm, I'm trying. And he said, just, just write it up and get out of here. This is not, this is not your magnum opus. This is not your life's work or anything like that. Just get out of here. You know? And we had a great laugh oh, man. and I was like, that's kind of cold blooded. And um, it's, I tell that story because <laughs> Ultimately, 14 years in, I, I actually do think that you know, I look at other jobs every year or something like that. I actually do think that this is my life's work. And I think nice. fortunate to have found something that uh, resonates with me and I want to keep going and the team wants to keep going. Of course, I couldn't resist asking, what's next for ODK? The big thing that we're working on for this year is um, adding more entity-based data collection into the mix. So those who know ODK, it's like very, ODK is very form-based. Like you go to a place Hmm. and you want to fill out a form. You know, it's like, you know, I want to do a household survey form. And typically you go to the household once. It's a point data collection, a one-time thing. But it's certainly Hmm. the case that a lot of people, they visit the same household multiple times or the same tree multiple times, um, or they see things more, instead of a form-based thing, they see it more as an entity-based thing where like, I'm going to this particular plot of land, this farm, and on this farm, there are this many trees, and these trees are linked to this farm. So it's more entity-based, um, and it's more longitudinal. And it's something that people have been asking that for for, like, I don't know, literally 10 years. And we've, <laughs> we've shied away from it for two reasons. One is that it's a large piece of work to do, and you need, like, consistent funding to do that. There was, nobody wanted to pay for all of it, and so it was never done. <laughs> And now that we have this revenue engine, right? It's like nobody wants to pay for this like large, complicated thing. That takes a year or two to build. Um, so now that we have this revenue engine, um, we've been sort of laying the groundwork for this feature over the last, silently, people don't know this, but we've been laying it <laughs> incrementally, we've been laying the groundwork for this feature. Um, and so that's what we're going to, we're really uh, pushing on for this year. It's like launch this new entity-based data collection thing. Um, some people call it case management. It's not going to really be case management, but it's sort of entity-based, more longitudinal. And it's imp- super exciting. Importantly, and we we'll always make this promise to folks at ODK, 
um, we don't want to make it complicated. You know, the thing that I love about ODK is like, mm. it's like this kind of land cruiser of data collection. You know, it's like, it does <laughs> what it says on the tin. It's always out there, super reliable. Um, and so we think we've found a really, a very nice sweet spot, you know? And I think um, as far as this entity-based stuff, and I think it's, really gonna, it's gonna blow people away. So I am, the organizational stuff is like nice or whatever, but I am really just absolutely excited about this entity-based stuff that we're going to be shipping here. And I th- nice. it's, it's going to bring a lot of smiles. That's all I care about. I can't wait to check it out. I can't wait. <laughs> so normally when we get to this part of the conversation, we would do our rapid fire questions. However, since Yao has been here before already, we kind of know the answers to those questions. So we had to come up with something a little bit different for this follow-up conversation. And Yao had the amazing idea to reach out and ask all of you, what are the questions you have for our guest of honor today? And so today we're going to be running through some of the questions that came in from you, our listeners, for our esteemed guests, Yao and Aqua. The first one, Yao, I'm going to throw out your way was actually, I don't know if this is my favorite, but some guy just asked, how are you doing in general? What's it like to run a small tech business in 2022? How has COVID life been a boon or a bane to someone in your position? Yeah, that's a great question. So thanks for that question. You know, for for us, for me, COVID sort of proved that we were on the right path. Um, when the pandemic hit, people leaned on on proving tools like ODK. And so we saw really a huge surges in usage. But as is always the case, those huge surges didn't necessarily lead to huge a huge surge in resources. So it was tough. You're saying it was tough. Well, uh, right. yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> it was hard. You can admit it. Yeah, you're not the only one. Lots of people found it hard. It's been so, a very hard two years. We all want it to be over. Yeah, it, you, know, we, you know, the surge I, I talked about, you know, you know, there's projects who have, you know, 50,000, you know, 80,000 people using ODK at once. And a lot of those people show up to the forum wanting support and all these kinds of things. Oh, yeah. So, yikes. yeah. So it's like a huge surge, but there's no, no equivalent surge in resources. And so, as an organization, there wasn't, so that was tough, sure. But, you know, as an organization, there wasn't much of a change that we needed to make because we've always been sort of an open source distributed project. So we've always been highly distributed. We've been remote first. We've been resilient in lots of ways since the project started. So we didn't have to do anything sort of different. We've been very fortunate in that regard. And then, of course, I am personally, as an individual, I'm exhausted, but it's, it's a, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's a, but it's a <laughs> good, does have a, it's a good a, exhaustion. A of- it's a good exhaustion. You know, it's like after a good workout. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think that there is a lot more that we can do to have more impact. And, you know, as I always say, I'm, I feel very lucky to have that opportunity. And I, I am, you know, excited about, about doing that work because there's, there are plenty of problems left and um, I think we can help with some of those problems. So yeah, I'm very excited about the future. I love that whole I'm exhausted, but it's a good kind. Yeah. It's a good kind. Your, your wife would love it. <laughs> For those of you that listened to the first episode, Yao talked about how his wife sees him as the man that loves drinking vinegar. And it's still true yeah. till today. Yeah, nothing has changed. <laughs> Next question for you, Yao. This one comes from Kieran Sharpie Schaefer, the founder of Palindrome Data in South Africa. Kieran asks, is there a gap between our aspirations of technology impact and how much impact we can actually see, touch and smell? Through our work, you know, this is a, a weird question from from Kieran. I I, I sort of imagine <laughs> Kieran. I mean, he's a weird guy. Yeah, so I've known Kieran for some time. I imagine him sitting at his desk, sniffing at a, a Power BI dashboard to see if he's he's having impact. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think there is a gap between aspirations and what we can measure, um, and th- that gap exists. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. You know, aspirations give you a bit of a north star, and they are by definition, right? You know, aspirational. You know, and so 
these are complex systems that we are talking about here. Uh, they involve human beings and governments. And, and so you can't always put a number to everything. You know, at, at ODK, we, we measure if users are happy with the software, what, you know, what features they're using, et cetera, et cetera, rather than say like lives saved or trees planted or whatnot. And that's not to say that we don't care about those things. We do. And we put like tons of examples of, of, of how we're having impact on social media and on our, on our forum. But at the end of the day, we are not directly implementing projects ourselves. You know, rather, we make tools for folks who implement projects. And, and so the more of those folks who are having success with our software, the more impact we feel like we're having. And it's indirect, but you know, we're comfortable with it and it, it's worked very well for, for us. That makes a lot of sense. I guess the inherent challenge with this kind of software is that if you do it right, it's going to be used in a ton of different ways. And if it's going to be used in a ton of different ways, then impact, you know, whatever the program is, it's going to be so different. So if you're Jane Goodall using it to measure monkeys, or if you're in Ethiopia using it to measure election results, like it's just not, it's just not the same metric. It's not the same metric. So how would someone like you ever know? Yeah. And- Unless we get the monkeys to vote. <laughs> <laughs> the next set of questions comes from Raphael Merckx, the head of governance and transparency at Ketalpa in Indonesia. He had a bunch of questions. Oh boy. Here we go. Here we go. His first question is about hiring engineers, especially how do you find those that are into tech for good? Yeah. Hiring is extremely uh, difficult. I think I had mentioned earlier about just the financial, you know, software developers, good software developers, they're very high demand and they're very well compensated. And so, yeah, very well. Yeah, we talked about that. So what we offer at ODK is, is really a chance to make a difference in the world in an organization that is truly is people first and it's just like an amazing place to work and so that's what we offer and we've tried a ton of things as far as like finding good people and we've had the most success from within our networks uh, and from people who like what we're doing so ultimately you know i make it a point to get to know as many people as possible regardless of domain i just you know my job in hiring is that five years before i need a role I am talking to people about what we do, get to know as many people as, uh, as we can. And so if you do that every day, the, waiter, the milkman, everyone, the meteorologist, and, you never know. And five years later, when we, we put a call out for, because we, we need to hire, then we're in a much better position to find a good candidate. You know, so it's not, you know, it's not helpful now, <laughs> but you really, yeah, it's just through our networks. And so the bigger your network and the more people know about the good work you're doing, the more you can sort of, you know, you get more opportunities to hire people um, over time. That makes sense. Nothing beats the face-to-face human or the virtual in the COVID world, some kind of human connection. Yeah, we've hired people (laughs) from Twitter. We've hired people from from my grad school networks. You know, it's just, but they all are familiar with the work and they've been familiar with the work for a long time. Nice. The other thing, the other thing I'll add on that topic, and this is something that was was a big topic of debate early on for, for me in the digital health space was, was whether engineers in the space have to be in it for the good. You know, even as I've been running this podcast and talking to different people about working in this space, a lot of people with a little digging, they admit like, I actually got into this space because I wanted some adventure. You know, I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to see something. And on the surface, you know, like maybe you need people that are, are purely, you know, mission driven in a way, but a lot of those people end up ended up doing really well and ended up getting sucked into the cause right. over time. <laughs> over time, so, you can't help but want to help people, right? It's like, yeah. I'm in it for the adventure, <laughs> but I'm also saving people. That's pretty good. You know, so it's a win-win. Yeah. I, it's not bad. I, I think adventure is like a perfectly reasonable uh, way to get into it. It's the hook. Draw them in. Yep. <laughs> 
Next question from Raphael is on design. Oh boy. Are shiny UIs, user interfaces, overrated? ODK seems to prefer a more functional approach. Yeah. What do you think? Great question. We strongly, we strongly believe that design is how it works and not how it looks. And so that's not to say mm. that we don't care about I like the, the visual appeal. We do, but given the choice, we'll pick function over form every time. Our, our users, our end users, they, they tend to be field staff who spend a lot of time in ODK. And so our goal is that their work and their workflows come first and the UI sort of has to fall away, almost like a system app. And I'll be the first to admit mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that there are, there are things in ODK that need improvement, but design, for, no. yeah, I mean, they have to be. Um, the no. iconic design uh, that I put together so many years ago. Yeah, so design is also knowing when a change can be made and how to make that change. It's a lot about the process. So in our, in our case, we have you know millions of users and many of them don't have a lot of technical experience. They've been trained once. And so even mm. a small change can be disruptive and it can be disruptive on a scale that's like really unbelievable because like, if you waste one person's time, okay, sure, you know, they have to relearn a thing. But again, like there's like 100,000 data collectors on a particular project and you change something that they've been trained on, that's like 100,000 people who have to be retrained. So, so one, of the, one of the reasons that people use ODK is that we are, we are very thoughtful and communicative about what changes are being made and, and when they're being made. And it's something that I think about a lot because uh, a positive change can save like literally millions of people's time, you know, like the, like millions of, of hours, mm. you know, but a yeah. negative change can all can cost a lot. And so we just, it can't, it can't just be like, oh, well, this thing could be better if we change the UI. Okay, sure. But then we have to update the docs. We have to update the, the QA. We have to communicate that change to a bunch of people who are not technical and their managers. So it, it's not just so straightforward. So design for us, mm-hmm. It's about like the process of knowing when a change can be made, what the trade-offs are in that change, so we can keep people in the field, you know, working, making progress and not disrupting them. You know, it's not just about, you know, this thing is, is, is beautiful or not. It has to work. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate the the glimmer that you give into what, you know, the baggage, I guess, that success yeah. brings with it. Like once you have a lot of users, once you have a very large, active global community, you need to support them. You can't just like pull out the rug from under them. And that means a certain care and thoughtfulness around your change process. So it's, I don't know, it's, an, it's a factor I think many people don't think about when they're like, why don't you build my <laughs> new feature right here, this exact button. <laughs> Switching over to questions from James Daly. Mysteriously, he, is, he labels himself the founding member at a fintech company in Seattle, Washington, which really makes you it's wonder. very stealthy, so, very stealthy. James, what are you doing? Let us know. James asks, I wonder if you can address uh, the approach you've taken with ODK and how it can be brought to a wider set of global ICT for Ds. What is the recipe for successfully managing a digital public good? Do you see your solution space as, as unique and how should such tech be supported by multilateral and bilateral institutions. I like these sort of big, impossible to answer. It's not even just one of them. You kind of like strong through like, them right, oh after, my goodness. right after each other. Okay, uh, let, me, let me think. So <laughs> many of the DPGs, the digital public goods, are they're functionally software for governments. Uh, and so 
everything involving those DPGs are, are built around that fact from the software architecture to project governance. So great example, great piece of software, DHIS2, right? It's in the name. It's a hmm. district health information system. So <laughs> there are only so you, you need a district and a, a district isn't something that like a random person can set up. It's like a government, you know? So ultimately those are their customers. I'd love my own district. <laughs> so like ODK <laughs> is not like that. ODK is in a bit of a sweet spot because it's, it's user-facing software that is accessible to both small and large organizations. It, you know, it works across sectors. DHIS2 is a health system. You know, ODK is not just a health tool. Um, and ODK also has the sort of large and growing install base. Whereas, you know, a tool like, say, again, DHIS2, there's only so many countries in the world, right? So, so many districts mm. in the world. Interesting. So the, the properties of ODK, this fact that it's, it's user-facing, that is accessible to small and large organizations, that is multi-sector, and that the, the, the install base still has a lot of room to grow, has sort of dictated the solution that we found. And so I, I don't think that approach will work for many of the DPGs. Um, I think there's like a, a DPG that's like sort of this like civic registration system. It's like you want to register everybody in, in a country. I mean, that's something that like a government has to do, hmm. you know? So you can't, there's no like yeah. SaaS product that makes sense. You have to be in like the <laughs> government purchasing cycle. You have to be written into their, you know, their digital health strategy. You know, it's just like a totally different game. So I don't think ODK solution... Sure applies to many of the DPGs. And huh. Interesting. Because they're not the same thing. It is So you wouldn't classify ODK as a like a typical DPG. I would classify ODK as a great example of a DPG, but not the reference not a government focused not a government focused one and 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 perhaps not one that the DPGs should model themselves after given the problems that they want to solve. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. That makes sense. Is there any lesson or tips, you know, from where you are looking, looking outwards for other DPGs that are more representative of the model? Like when you see these government procured systems that are baked into digital strategies, what are they doing correctly? You know, I, I think DHIS2 is really a great example of, of a project that is well positioned um, in this space as far as both being a digital public good and something that governments sort of understand how to procure and the ecosystem around it. So I think it's like, it's a, it's a good example of that, uh, that folks can sort mm-hmm. of, you know, I don't know if it's like sustainable or, you know, what is sustainability, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's well positioned <laughs> between like the academies that they have, the communities of practice, the ecosystem. I think it's like a good, it's a good model to look at. Perhaps a more controversial take on this problem is also just looking at what the sales forces of the world do. You know, governments don't just buy a, a software for public health and these kinds of things. They, they buy software all the time, but it, it's purchased in like a, in a more, you know, a more enterprise way, you know, with huge sales teams and all these kinds of things. And so I, I think, yeah, I think it would probably be wise for a, a lot of the DPGs to really look at, you know, what, how does government buy software outside of the space and what lessons can we learn from those those processes that can be relevant to the DPGs and what adjustments need to be made. Yeah, that makes sense. As far as I know, even looking at the DHIS2 example, often there isn't even a question of procuring the software. It's about engaging the technical assistance to build and, you know, main, and, and host and whatever it is, but they've, they've, they've worked it out in such a way that Procurement is no longer the biggest barrier, as you pointed out. And 
you know, never, if you don't work in government, you don't understand how big a deal procurement is. And then when you do, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One longtime listener who asked to remain anonymous had two questions for us. He asks, I'd love to hear your thoughts on DICE, the Digital Health Centers of Excellence from UNICEF and the WHO. How is that program going to bring funding and not just marketing to open source projects? A bit more about DICE. It's a consortium with some pretty heavy hitters. You know, Gates, GIZ, Global Fund, those guys. And it's positioned as a COVID-19 rapid response mechanism. The idea being that they can assemble, mobilize, and deliver technical assistance much faster than other mechanisms that exist already. The way the question is phrased, it certainly sounds like this person is a little jaded and doesn't believe that DICE (laughs) will solve the funding problem. Truth be told, I am a little jaded also. But I I think uh, Sean, who's heading up DICE, I think Sean understands the problem, and I am I am hopeful that he can use his influence to make more structural change. All, all that said, it's a they're very diff, difficult problems to solve. I you know I used to think like why well, can just they can just change things around, but you know if you take take something like USAID, you know that money comes from Congress, the U.S. Congress, which is not known for being a collaborative and consensus-seeking institution, <laughs> it, it comes out of, a, oh out of a political process. And it, it's a process that requires a lot of, of structure. And you know the money that flows down through USAID has to be accounted for because it belongs to the American people and all this. So it, they are very complex. It is a complex process that, that produces the money and a complex process that has to account for it. So the whole thing is going to be complicated. So there's lots of structural <laughs> problems. And so, so if you, that's just from the U.S. government side. If you take something from like a funder side, like a, you know, a, a Gates Foundation or one of these sort of uh, big funders, they also tend to fund new things and, and innovative things, um, and tend to want to do things that you know in a one big chunk. And that doesn't always sort of map to what projects need. So the whole, everything about the process, <laughs> like everything about the process, is complicated because it is a complicated process. You know. <laughs> and, and so I, yeah. I think Sean understands this. I think pretty much anybody who, who works at, at the intersection of software and aid uh, understands this. And it's not the kind of thing that one center of excellence or, or one person can change. Um, and that's why I'm a little mm-hmm. jaded, because I think structurally it's a, very, it's a very difficult thing. And our last question for today, again from our anonymous listener. He asks, what are your thoughts on Unlock Aid? the program that various social enterprises have joined on, which is trying to change the way that USAID is funding technology-based social enterprises. Basically, what's happened is a group of social enterprises that build technology in the aid sector have created a loose coalition. They're lobbying to make it easier for smaller, innovative social enterprises to engage with USAID. So ODK punches way above our weight as far as impact for the size of our organization we are. And and while we work with a lot of social impact orgs, in many ways we live at the edges of the aid sector. You know, we, we don't have a DC office is perhaps the best example of this. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. You know, as I said earlier, it's a just the money that flows through the US aid system is just it's it's very political in nature. And I'm not saying that in a in a bad way. I'm just saying like it it comes from a political process. And so It'll likely require a political process to change it, and it'll likely require U.S. companies to to have some influence in order to to make those changes. Yeah, that makes sense. I I will chime in just because this is my own 
no particular soapbox <laughs> to step on. Get on the soapbox. <laughs> I love their mission. I love what they're trying to do. I think we, you and I, yeah, we, we agree. USAID needs to shake things yep. up. And the way yep. that it funds tech is just so broken for tech. So like, yes, thank God there's an organization out there pushing for that kind of change. When you look at the organizations that create Unlock Aid, uh, there's 14 of them. 10 of them are American-based. Two of them are from Europe and two of them are from Africa now. Uh, and so you see there's definitely this like strong skew towards that American representation, which maybe is fair because they're lobbying against USAID. For me here in South Africa, and you know, given my personal mission at this point on social enterprises in Africa or serving Africa, it really feels like it's missing that local representation, you know, local organizations, local startups in Africa. And if we don't have those people at the table, then the organization is always going to be biased towards making sure that it's meeting more of the business needs of American companies, many of which I love. Yao, you and your organization. And we are US-based, <laughs> but we're not lobbying anybody. <laughs> but yeah, no, I guess my main ask would just be to have a, a more diversified representation of that particular consortium. Well, to push back a little bit from your soapbox one question I have is that, is that even a, a reasonable thing? You know, I think I listened to an earlier podcast that you did with somebody from USAID, and they raised an important point that it's very difficult for small organizations, especially those that are not based in the U.S., to meet all the various sort of reporting requirements and auditing that has to happen yeah. as part of a USAID project. And so it, if we want these organizations that are in-country and very nimble and doing great work on the ground, a lot of those organizations, their skill sets are totally different than what is required to even apply to a USAID it's true. contract. <laughs> and so, true. It, you know, it may not even be reasonable. And then the fact that they're not based in the U.S. is also a problem because ultimately you have to go to your congressperson to get these kind of changes made. And so, like, if you are, say, uh, you know, a uh, a Johannesburg-based organization, and you're, you're calling Congress, they're going to say, "What's your zip code?" You know, it's like you're not you're not a constituent. It's very hard to have influence if you're not a member of the voting public. And so, it, yeah, that's what I mean by these problems are very, um, as we say in Southern California, they're very gnarly. You know, they are. They are California. Uh, yeah, it's a, sort of a complex and very messy problem. And as I get older, uh, I realize that there may not be good solutions. But if you don't have your voice at the table, then there's, there's no chance. Yeah, fair enough. And I guess my point is that like, at least the stated goal of USAID is to be on that journey to self-reliance. And it's, it is to support small businesses, you know, with some portion of their allocation. And if that's not the goal, then fine, just don't say that anymore. Yeah. But if that is the goal, then you have to have small businesses at the table, like they can talk. And USAID is good at talking. So like, let's make that happen. Yeah. But like, Let's have those people at the table. Let's have the small businesses. Let's have the local organizations. And maybe it's a hard problem. Maybe it's going to take years and decades and centuries to solve it. But let's have that conversation. Let's let's place that problem head on. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Yao. For anyone who's listening to this show who wants to get in touch with you or to learn more about ODK and how it's doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Easiest way to do it is just to go to the ODK website. So that is get odk.org to learn more about ODK. There's a lot of information there. And then if you want to reach me personally, uh, my email address is yanokwa, so first initial, last name, y-a-n-o-k-w-a at getodk.org. You don't have to email me about ODK. You can email me about whatever you want. I'm glad to talk about business models or you know whatever it is that you want to talk about. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the show today. Tune in again in two weeks 
for the story of how Wella Health is making healthcare affordable in Nigeria. If you like what you heard, spread the word, tell a friend. And if there's an amazing social enterprise that you'd like to see on the show, send me a note at rowena at aidevolved.com. We'll see you in two weeks.